Are you turning with me to John's Gospel? I'm ever so sad, it's the last, I can't hang it out any longer, so. I've been <laughs> trying to string chapter 21 out for some time. And um, so we're in John 21. Let's pray as we come to God's words. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would never tire of reading your word, of praying your word, and hearing your word taught. We just thank you for what a privilege it is to have your word, your revelation, in language that we can understand. We just thank you for the privilege we have. And Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak, that I would speak well of the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So it's John 21, we'll read verses 20 to 25. And it's entitled, Jesus and the Beloved Apostle. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. In the context of our study, we've had a breakfast meeting that involved Jesus and his disciples. Jesus cooked breakfast for his disciples. And it was at the conclusion of this breakfast meeting we looked at last time in verse 15. And following that, we looked at restoration, how Jesus took the opportunity to restore the Apostle Peter to a place of wonderful usefulness. And we saw last time that Jesus defined for Peter his responsibility to feed his sheep. He also, Jesus also told Peter of the death that he, Peter, would die to the glory of God. And it is then, at that point, that Jesus issues a command which is clear and concise. At the end of verse 19, just before verse 20 we read, two words, follow me. And it is in response to this command, some years before, that Peter and his brother Andrew had stepped out on the path of discipleship. Read about that in... Matthew 4, for example, and the simplicity of Jesus' statement here is more than matched by the significance of it. If we remember from John 13, verse 36, when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. 
So within a matter of weeks, Peter has experienced the gap between his profession and his action. And now, reflecting upon the dreadful nature of his fallenness, Jesus has brought him wonderfully to a place of reinstatement, of restoration. And it's interesting that the first words which took Peter on the path of discipleship were the very words which leads him here. Simply, Peter, follow me. And in those words, Jesus gives to Peter and gives to disciples for all time a directive which is not a casual option, but a crucial obligation. When Jesus looks us in the face, which I know he does, and says, follow me, he is not making a suggestion. He's issuing a command. And when he commands us to activity, he always enables us to fulfil our obligations. Jesus said, follow me, and it's he who provides us the means to do that. So those two words at the end of verse 19, where Jesus said to Peter, is a renewed call to discipleship. It's a renewed call to the restored Peter to the responsibilities that were uniquely his, namely to be a fisher of men. And now in the verses we've noticed before, a feeder of sheep. But first of all, I wanted to go through these last verses by looking first of all at the question asked by Peter in verse 21. When Peter saw him, that's the disciple who wrote the book, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And it would appear that what Jesus said to his disciples, metaphorically, his disciples took literally. Jesus was about to leave them by means of the ascension. And therefore, unlike the previous three years, where when he said, follow me, and then went to Capernaum, he would expect them to do just that, to follow him. But Jesus has now made it clear that where he is going, they cannot come. That's true of crucifixion. It certainly is true of ascension. So Jesus' word to Peter, follow me, is a call to something different than following him on the road, than just walking behind Jesus on the road. But it would seem, as you look at the clear and obvious nature of the text, that Peter literally began to follow him. Because Peter turned. He turned and he saw the disciples whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So Jesus says, follow me. He moves, and Peter begins to move literally behind him. And Peter turns and sees that John has now added himself to the procession. And then he asks the question, seeing John. The same John who had leant against the breast of Jesus in the Last Supper. The one who had asked the question, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? It's interesting when you look back at John 13 in terms of that incident. It was Peter who said to John, ask him who is going to betray him. And John, having been directed to ask by Peter, asked the question and he records it all. But then verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, 
what about him? Lord, what about him? Now the question raises itself about the question, what provoked the question? Was Peter moved by sensitivity? Did he ask that question about John? Because now having learned of his own proposed martyrdom, as Jesus had told him of it? Was he concerned lest John, who was his friend and his brother, would face that same eventuality? Was his question provoked by sheer curiosity? Was the question provoked by jealousy? Was the question provoked by a sense of inadequacy? And we'll address those shortly, but you'll see it, the tone of Christ's reply in verse 22. It would suggest to us that while on the surface Peter's question may just appear to be proof of his friendly interest, in actual fact it was proof that Christ's command had not fully grasped him. So Jesus says to him, that is not the issue, Peter. The issue is simply this, I have asked you, Peter, to follow me. Now that brings us to the second heading, which is where we'll spend most of our time in our few minutes together this afternoon, the directive of Christ. The question asked by Peter is followed by the direction given by Christ. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now Jesus, who knows the heart of a man, if he had known Peter was asking only out of a sense of empathy, may well have replied something like, oh Peter, how nice of you to think of your brother. I'm glad to hear that you're so concerned about John. But interestingly, Christ, who knows the heart of man, does not respond in that way. Instead, the response of Jesus began a rumour, which is dealt with in verse 23, namely that John was going to stay alive forever until Christ returned, which is cleared up by John himself in verse 23. Let me suggest to you that in this encounter we come face to face with something which in each of our lives is not very encouraging. And that is an unhelpful preoccupation with other people. Of, you know, this, the what about him or the what about her syndrome. The preoccupation with what God is choosing to do or not choosing to do in another individual's life. Let me suggest to you that the, the dangers, the, the potential pitfalls are these. And each of them is a possible explanation of what was happening in Peter's question. You see, it could have been that Peter's question was tinged by a, a touch of jealousy. There's four dangers, if you like. First, you can see the danger of encroaching jealousy. When we find ourselves asking the question, Lord, what about him? Or Lord, what about her? It could be that the issue is jealousy. See, Peter received his assignment he received it clearly. The Lord said to Peter, follow me. And immediately his response is to be involved in comparison. Immediately he begins to compare himself and his comparison with the assignment that has been given to his brother. I want to suggest really honestly that if we're not prepared to admit that we identify with this, we're being less than sincere. 
God comes to us in our lives and comes individually. He calls us to himself. He calls us to a place of usefulness. But many of us are impoverished in the place of God's appointing because we're guilty of twisting the head off our shoulders as a result of an unlawful concern about someone else's Christian experience. And we're constantly damaged by unhelpful comparison. And when such a perspective is present at any degree in our lives, it's a result of an inadequate view of the purpose and the provision of God. It's doubting God. God is in control of his church. Christ is the head of the church. God has mastery over the affairs of our lives. God has put things in position just as God wants them to be. And when God issues his directives to you as an individual, the fundamental concern is that we might do as we are told. And we need to learn a fundamental truth of scripture that our glory is never in comparison with others. Our glory is always in the service of Jesus in whatever capacity he has given us. So what Christ has called you to as an individual, whether it appears great or small, whether it's public or private, whether it is special or apparently inconsequential, that is the place of God's appointing and it is the best place to be. And as long as it continues in that way, then we need to beware the danger of encroaching jealousy. Secondly, we need to be aware of this danger of debilitating inadequacy. Sometimes when you find a believer who takes an inordinate interest in what God is doing in the lives of others, and I don't mean from a sense of concern, out of a genuine desire to be helpful, but when someone is preoccupied, well, what are they doing? Who, who, who said they could do that or? What's happening to him? What's happening to her? What about me? How about her? How about him? Where will he go? What will he do next? At least there is the potential of the revelation of the fact that the individual is dealing with personal inadequacy. But God has called us to personal obedience. And that he has called us, and what he has called us to do is fine. If you are a believer and you have a sense of being no use in the kingdom of heaven, no use in the purposes of God, then let me suggest that you fail to see that God's purpose is unique for you. Your glory is in your obedience, not in comparing yourself to other people. It's in your obedience to what he has called you to do. But so often what happens is we begin to look around. And we see the giftedness of another, we see the opportunities of others, we see the places they've gone, the people they've seen, we see and hear their testimony, we listen to their usefulness, and we begin to say, hmm, I'll never be any good. I'm no use at all, really. I don't think I'll be any good until I'm like him, or like her, until I can go there, or experience that. Until someone discovers me and makes me one of those. That, 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 that's wrong. We'll never be any good 
Not until we're like each other, but until we're like Jesus Christ. And we'll, we will not be of use unless we're in the place of his appointing. And the sense of inadequacy which pervades many within the body of Christ is one of the foremost reasons why people don't get involved. Where John was a little more introspective, we think more deeply about things and we're waiting to become a Peter so we can be used. But John was vital. Look how vital John was. Peter was, obviously. But God is not in the business of making mistakes. He puts people in places together as he desires. And that's made perfectly plain in the instruction which Paul gives on the body of Christ. And remember what I'm saying is that Peter's question, Lord, what about him, is a question we often ask. And it is a question that Peter may have asked because of jealousy. And it's a question he may have asked because of inadequacy. But whether he did or not, we're both prone, we're prone to both. 1 Corinthians 12, 15, you know it well. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. It's a wonderful picture that Paul paints, because you think, yeah, obviously. We would be making a statement which is inaccurate, born of inadequacy, and ultimately unhelpful to itself and the rest of the body. And yet all the time people do just that. Well, I'm not this. So I'm not going to get involved at all. If I can't be this, then I'm going to pick up my toys and go. And Paul says, that is ridiculous. You would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, fairly grotesque, isn't it? Where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body was an ear, where would, there be, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And I want you to see this, beloved, that there is a work for Jesus that none but you can do. I'm convinced of that. I know it to be true. This is not a professional ministry. The expansion of the church has always been because of grassroots activity. For those who gossip the gospel every day. A wonderful phrase, isn't it? Gossiping the gospel. If you find yourself prone to gossip, then gossip the gospel. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And the expansion of the church has always been the result of people who gossip the gospel of people who accept their calling where they lived. Maybe at university or in education, in medicine, in sports, in engineering, in the home. They say, this is God's appointing to me. Whether I push a broom or preach a sermon, we will do both to the glory of Christ. And then that way we can thank God for what he has done and we can trust him for what he is going to do. It's not that we, that we, it's not the idea that we have a go because we want what someone else has got, but it's we're, we're happy where God has put us. We're content. 
and we do it to the glory of Jesus Christ. We can leave our future in his care and we can stop being preoccupied with what he may be about to do or not about to do in the life of my brother or sister. Another picture which isn't used in scripture but I thought it might be quite helpful. We used to try and go as often as we could to the music for I in Vienna to hear the Vienna Philharmonic. I did have a, there's a guy in our church who used to play trombone in there and he used to sneak me in the back door. Um, and you know, I used to sit on the back row, it was very low, it was sort of Simon Rattle was uh, conducting. It was rather a remarkable privilege. But I read this, and I think I've seen it in a picture, which is why I actually searched for it this week. And this is, and this is about the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Most people use metal sheets for industrial reasons, but Toronto Symphony Orchestra composer Jordan Powell is using it to create music. For one of the TSO's latest pieces, Powell utilises a 10-foot tall piece of metal to form a thunderous effect that can be played in several ways, shaking it, tapping it, and using a cello bow, bow to name a few. It's for the thunder in the symphony. I'm thinking, well, I, I'm quite good at that. I'm quite good at making a noise. You know, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could kick this metal sheet and it could, it could produce thunder. And if somebody just told me when to kick the metal sheet, I could kick it and then I could be part of the orchestra. That big steel plate was there for a purpose. And I don't know who rattled it in the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And I'm sure they didn't, there weren't somebody like me off the street kicking it. But they, would, they could do many other things in the, in the fields of percussion with drums and other things, not just big steel plates. But you understand the point where I'm trying to make inadequately. That the member of the orchestra who sits at the back bemoaning the fact that the only thing he has to do is bang a big steel plate. But it was vital. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have had that thunder without it. It wouldn't have been complete without Mr. Thunderer tapping the steel plate. God may have made you a steel plate rattler. He may have made you a first violinist. He may have made you whatever he made you, but he made you what he made you. And God says to Peter, just get on with it, Peter. Just get on with it, follow me. Don't worry about him, follow me. And that is what God says to you. That's what God says to me. Your responsibility is to discover the will of God for your life, not to discover the will of God for the person sitting next to you. You know, I, I, I must confess I've done this. Well, what a great sermon for him. I wish so-and-so had been out this afternoon to hear that. It would have been a super message for her. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me. And don't allow the evil one to lose you with a sense of personal inadequacy or comparison with someone else. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? Answer, God. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And the third danger is the danger of idle curiosity. 
Leon, Leon Morris's commentary on John says the direction given by Jesus is an emphatic way of reminding the impulsive leader of the apostolic band that there are some things which are quite outside his province. That's a hard thing for some of us to grapple with, but there are some things that are just outside our province. And Jesus is saying to Peter, it's outside yours. That's not the issue, Peter, follow me. Curiosity eventually must give way to obedience. And there's a principle here once again. We must not be so deeply interested in God's mysterious secret counsel, so much so that we don't pay attention to God's revealed will. There's, there is a peace and a rest that comes from obeying God's revealed will, which sometimes can, in, rather than chaotically, worried about God's unrevealed will, God's secret counsel. But yet, as so often is the case, we're confused and consumed with questions which fit inside the, the realms of the mysterious purposes of God. Now, I also know that that's a bit of a cop-out as well, so I'm not just saying everything you say, well, that's just a mystery, I'm not going to bother about it. There are things that we're asked to do and to dig into and to go deep. But Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, 29 makes it clear that there are things that fit inside the mysterious realms of God. Let us not pursue that and be useless at obeying the revealed purposes of God for my life. There are times when questions are out of order. There's a story, I mean, I've, I've heard it in a couple of irritation in, in, you know, um, applications, but there's a man who was shot by a poisoned feathered arrow, you may have heard it, and as the arrow went into his body, he didn't stand and say, I wonder what wood was used in the arrow that's entering my body. That's an interesting feather. I wonder what bird produced the feather on the arrow. I wonder what lab created the poison. I'm interested to know who shot the arrow. Was he tall or was he short? Did he have dark hair or blonde hair? No, he's not worried about any of that, is he? He's going to pull the arrow out and get help. But some of us have put, us, put ourselves in bypass meadow in our Christian experience because we're trying to work out the unrevealed purposes of God and all the time we have an arrow in our gut. And, Paul, and Peter was about to do the same. Lord, I want to know about this. And the Lord says, that is not your province. Follow me. Pastors are good at it as well. We're not preaching sermons that mystify people. Sometimes they're even worse when they mystify yourself, but never mind. But, and I often think sometimes, you know, oh my, he must study a lot because I can't understand a thing he's saying. And <laughs> put ourselves up there. There's a wonderful quote, and I'm not even sure I can use all the words in it, but it's from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and it's really quite funny, actually. For instance, the great problems of sublapsarianism and supralapsarianism the trenchant debates concerning eternal filiation, the earnest dispute concerning the double procession and the pre- or post-millenarial schemes, however important some may deem them, are of very little concern to the godly widow woman with seven children to support by her needle, who wants far more to hear of the loving kindness of the God of Providence than of these mysteries profound. 
If you preach to her the faithfulness of God to his people, she will be cheered and helped in the battle of life. But difficult questions will perplex her or send her to sleep. I know a minister whose shoe latchet I'm unworthy to unloose, whose preaching is often little better than sacred miniature painting, I might almost say holy trifling. He is great on the ten toes of the beast, the four faces of the cherubim, the mystical meanings of badger skins, and the typical bearings of the staves of the ark and the windows of Solomon's temple. But the sins of businessmen, the temptations of the age, he scarcely ever touches upon. Such preaching reminds me of a lion engaged in mouse hunting or a man of war cruising after a lost water butt. But the, the point is there, the danger of idle curiosity in relation to the things of God in our lives and with the text. And finally, there is an importance in following Jesus personally. I can't tell you what point number it is because I've lost track. But there is an importance to following Jesus personally. And this is what the Lord God is saying to Peter here. And God may call us to a position of responsibility in what we call formal, full-time Christian service. Or in the everyday workplace of our lives, in community, in industry, or the home, wherever it may be. But follow Jesus we must. And the way to follow him is to read the Bible and obey the scriptures. It's to come to him in prayer and to submit our lives to him. And to recognise that the Lord deals with us graciously and he deals with us personally and he deals with us purposefully. Paul was a great pioneer, Peter the great shepherd of the sheep, John the evangelist was the great witness. Now will you please notice the conclusion which John therefore reaches in verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The we, in verse 24, is probably the elders at Ephesus. And the necessity of this truthful testimony was in light of the, pecu the peculiarities of John's day. And there was a particular heretic by the name of Serenthus, who lived in the same time of John. And his heresy is as prevalent today in the 21st century as it was in the first. And he taught that Jesus Christ was merely human and not divine. And that his birth and life were directly as the result of human activity of Mary and Joseph. And God and John was concerned about this. Indeed, Irenaeus relates that there were those who heard from Polycarp that John on one occasion going to the baths in Ephesus and perceiving Serenthus within rushed out of the bathhouse shouting let us flee lest even the bathhouse fall down the enemy of truth is within what difference have 21 centuries made there's an increasingly impoverished Nominally Christian, even evangelicalism, which says, let us go into the bathhouses with them. 
After all, we're just the same. And John wrote his gospel to correct the mistaken theology of his day. And how we need the proclamation of John's gospel to do that today in our generation. And his testimony was a necessity. His testimony was marked by reliability. And his testimony was true. Read the opening letters, words of his letter. That was which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. And finally, his testimony was marked by selectivity, verse 25. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The book is finished. The story is incomplete. You turn to the next page in your Bible, Acts chapter 1, and Luke picks up the story. And he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus still works today. And he works through you. And he works through me. And he works by the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who will do what he asks. Simply to hear his voice and to follow him. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. And he still lives. I praise the Lord. He still forgives. He still receives. He demands our allegiance. He still loves. And there's a wonderful example of modern hyperbole in the hymn writer. Speaking about the love of the Lord Jesus, you know the hymn well. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. John says these things were written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in believing you might have life in his name. And that message is still as relevant and as up-to-date and as current today as it was then. And I, hesit you know, I attempted to preach this series on John. Why? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.